Welcome back, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti Golar, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. And today, we're tackling the effects of the pandemic on the Asian community. Our first guest is New York Congresswoman Grace Ming. She shares with us how the pandemic stirred anti-Asian sentiment not only in the greater public, but also in government. Our second guest is Georgia State Representative B. Wen. She talks about the violence towards the Asian community in Georgia and her campaign for Secretary of State. And to round us out, we will be given a special training from Marita Achebanez of Asian Americans Advancing Justice and Gabriela Mejia of Hollaback on what bystanders can do when they see people experiencing anti-Asian harassment. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited, as usual, to be joined by Congresswoman Grace Ming from New York. She's someone who I've had the privilege of knowing for a few years now, and she is just such an advocate for women, communities of color. Congresswoman, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Ashanti. I'm thrilled to be here and uh, just an amazing fan of all of your great work. The feeling is mutual. First, I want to start off with how are you doing? You've lived through a pandemic, an insurrection at the Capitol, and an increase in Asian hate. There has been a lot going on in this world. Great question. I think many of us who have gone through 2020 were looking forward to what 2021 would bring. Um, and yes, starting with the insurrection, it has proven to be a very eventful year already. But I am glad that our country is getting through the pandemic. We finally have leadership in the White House that is helping to continue to save lives and help our country recover from this pandemic. We've lost too many Americans around the country. And yes, I think, you know, going through what we've seen a skyrocketing number of hate incidents against Asian Americans has been really frightening. But at the same time, I feel that one of the silver linings of all this is that we have been having very intentional conversations on what we uh, as our shared communities around the country need to do better and to do more of. As a member of Congress, you've truly had a front row seat to how the government has been handling the pandemic. So when it started in 2020, and now looking at us coming to, you know, the end of the pandemic or a post-pandemic world, how did it impact your community, the district that you represent? And what do you think are still going to be some of the long-term impacts that you're going to have to deal with as a congresswoman and that our country is going to have to deal with? So New York City, especially Queens, New York, was really the uh, one of the first epicenters in this country. Our jobs were completely transformed. I mean, you know, we had emergency room doctors to uh, lab technicians calling from hospitals, people I didn't even know personally, just crying to me on the phone, begging for help, whether it was, you know, PPE at the time or ventilators. They 
They were so, um, you know, mentally stressed. They were fearful that they were going to die. I mean, we've all seen images of one of my hospitals in the district, Elmhurst Hospital, where there were lines around the block from people seeking help and trucks converted into makeshift morgues. So our district, um, so many people have just been through so much. And what was really frustrating was that we were trying to work with the former administration who really um, just not provide enough support uh, for our communities. And it was so, so frustrating. And so now, you know, I'm glad that we are coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we are seeing, you know, vaccination rates go up. But we still have a lot more work to do. We need to still get more vaccines into more arms. People have still lost their jobs. They've lost their family members and loved ones. They've lost their homes. And so I really have seen and believe that we can't just build back to what things were the day before the pandemic started, but we have to be smarter and more creative and more equitable in how we're restoring a lot of our programs, services, and infrastructure. You just really shed a light on so many of the injustices that we've seen. And in addition to leading on COVID, you've been a key voice on stopping Asian hate. We've seen an increase across the country. And with some of these hate crimes, they're not only racist in nature, they're also sexist in that they target women, especially what we saw in Atlanta. So can you tell us about your work around this issue, especially the legislation that you have led on in Congress? And for the listeners, before we started the interview, I told the Congresswoman, I'm just so grateful for her being a voice of reason and a champion during this time and speaking out because we know that there's so many people who really would have liked to just seen this swept under the rug. So we yet again didn't have to address the racism in our country. Yeah, so a lot of these incidents were already starting to happen even before COVID hit us here in this country. Um, a lot of small businesses that were owned by Asians were telling us, mm -hmm. you know, sort of anecdotally here and there that business went down. People would say that, you know, they were afraid to go because they didn't want to catch COVID if you went to your local Chinese restaurant. A lot of, you know, there was a real lack of information and, and people were already being described discriminated against. And I think with the, the language that the former president used, you know, calling this uh, Wuhan and Chinese virus and, and Kung flu really emboldened a lot of naive fear that so many people had. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we worked on legislation and I will say that we were just begging the former president and other leaders not to use those terms because we knew what would happen. We knew that these incidents would go up. And worst case scenario, we saw something like the tragedy in Atlanta, um, which is exactly the type of tragedy that that we were fearing. Um, and so, you know, we've been working on legislation and I really want to take a moment to thank my colleagues. You know, obviously our Asian caucus, the Congressional Asian Caucus has been working on this issue a lot, but we couldn't have done it without the support of our colleagues in the Black and Hispanic Caucus, for example. I mean, the solidarity that we have felt, uh, I as an Asian American have never felt so much support uh, 
and a show of solidarity as I have felt this past year and a half or so. And we wouldn't have made it this far without the support uh, and strength uh, shared with uh, from other communities. Um, and so I do think that that is a lesson going forward that I hope that we can continue to, to practice. We've passed legislation. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have been super supportive since day one. Um, even after the tragedy in Atlanta, they flew to Atlanta to meet with local leaders and felt and comforted the people of Georgia after this happened. And that in turn brought comfort to Asian Americans all across the country. So yeah, we've passed legislation that will hopefully uh, provide more transparency into, into how the government is collecting data and how we are reaching out to hate crime victims and how we are going to provide more resources to our local community groups to help uh, alleviate these issues. I love how you talked so much about the solidarity between our communities because that's something that I notice and it's really important to me because we always see that they try to use these times as an opportunity to pit us against each other. And it's something that makes my blood just absolutely boil. And I actually wrote an op-ed with a friend talking about long history of solidarity that exists actually between Black women and Asian women. And so many people are like, wow, we didn't even know about it. And it's because it's just so much easier to infuse hate and try to divide than to show our communities working together. So thank you to you too for all that you do for other black and brown women as well to lift them up. So for my next question, with this increase in attacks, and this is something that you know, me and my Asian sisters have been talking about is the Asian community has also been speaking out against the model minority myth. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what is the model minority myth and how has it stood in the way addressing discrimination against Asians and the AAPI community more broadly? Yeah, I think the model minority myth is tied into what you were just very eloquently describing and the fact that so many people in this country, including members of both our Asian and other communities, don't know our full American history. We don't necessarily know the facts. And in fact, a recent study came out that showed, for example, most of these hate crimes and bias incidents were not perpetrated by people of color. And that that's a misconception that we're constantly trying to push back on and to shed light on. And just, you know, really quickly, it's really important that we know our history. You know, in recent weeks, we have talked about so much of Black history that is not necessarily taught sufficiently in our schools and in our curriculum. Um, whether it's the Tulsa massacre, whether it's Juneteenth, but there's so much that we are not sufficiently teaching our kids, whether it's the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Japanese incarceration camps. These are all parts of American history that we need to make sure our next generation of leaders understand. And the model minority myth is something that was really constructed directly or indirectly to pit some of our communities against each other. And that actually really hurts our communities. One of the things that I think is needed is to have more data, which in part is from my legislation 
population, but also in in every you know on every topic, healthcare, for example, um, we need more data to understand that uh, Asian Americans suffer from certain diseases at a more disproportional rate than other communities. Um, we need to understand that Asian Americans, for example, in New York City, are one of the highest groups living in poverty. And when we portray our community as you know people who are succeeding at all levels and create that false narrative, at the same time, our communities are not receiving the help and the resources that we need. Absolutely. And to close us out, Congresswoman, what are some ways that we can continue to stand in solidarity with the Asian community? Well, something that the national NAACP president said is to be a friend before you need a friend. And I've been trying to convey that uh, in every audience that I'm in front of. When I go to a rally to stop Asian hate, I tell the audience, Asian and non-Asians, that we can't only show up when racism affects our own communities. We have to show up when it affects every single community. And you know what? We're making history here. There's no guidebook There's no roadmap of what we're supposed to do next. Like, what do we do the day after we show up at these rallies? And that's where the real hard work begins. But I'm really hopeful because people are reaching out left and right to see what we can do. Just in the last 48 hours, I've had meetings with, um, for example, leaders, uh, a clergy of Black and Asian churches here in New York City. We are planning events where our communities can meet each other and get to know each other and understand each other better. Sometimes we're literally neighbors in the same community, but we don't know about each other's achievements, struggles, trauma, etc. So it's up to us all of us to be very intentional on creating opportunities where our communities can learn that in order to make progress, we have to walk together, that it is not constructive to point fingers at each other. And in solidarity, we will see progress and make history. So well said. Congresswoman Grace Ming, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, for everything that you do for our country. Thank you. Same to you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be speaking with B. Wen, the state representative from Georgia, who has been doing so many phenomenal things. B, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on here. I'm so excited to have you. First, I want to start by telling everyone a pretty cool fact, which is that you now occupy Leader Stacey Abrams' former seat in the State House. So tell us how your path to public office came about. Yeah, that is actually my street cred because a lot of times people are <laughs> uninterested in state house reps. So then when I add in the, well, I am now representing the seat that Stacey Abrams once held, their eyes light up and they want to engage in some conversation. <laughs> Um, But my path to political office was not one that I planned. I never thought I would run for office. It was something that 
you know, I quite frankly never saw anybody who looked like me and in office and um, it was never really presented to me as an option. And so I was working in public high schools in Atlanta and DeKalb through a nonprofit. I started doing after school programming and mentorship for young women. And in that space, I was in the classroom every single week with students whose public schools uh, have been underfunded by the Georgia legislature. And as a result, my students were struggling to graduate from high school, not just because um, the Georgia General Assembly has been cutting the K through 12 public education budget, but also because their parents do not have livable wages. They don't have access to health care, dental care, healthy foods, transportation, and they have high levels of victimization in their communities. And so I recognize the importance of engaging on the policy side because I came to understand that these sitting lawmakers were making the decisions that trickle down to these students that I cared so much about. And that was the first time I understood my role in terms of being an advocate to push forward for changes that would support my students. And even in those moments, I never envisioned I would run for office. When Stacey stepped up to run for governor, she left her seat in 2017 and there was a special election. And like many women, it required me being asked five to seven times, but probably a lot more times than that before I made that decision to run for office. And I think that this is an experience that many women and women of color and people of color also experience is that when I did make that decision, there were many folks who said, stay in your lane. You are just a social justice advocate. It's not your turn. Um, Not that I wouldn't be a good lawmaker, not that I wasn't committed, not that I wasn't smart enough to do it. It was that it's just simply not your turn. We hear that all the time, but it was your turn and you have been such an effective leader in that seat for the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia. And going into COVID, we know Georgia has been one of those states that has been in the spotlight during the pandemic. You have a mayor who is very cautious about the pandemic. You have a governor who's like, what pandemic? It's a hoax. We don't need any of these things. So as a leader, as a person, how have you seen the pandemic impact the AAPI community specifically in the state? The pandemic has wreaked havoc on our communities across the state of Georgia and especially those who are from low-income areas, and especially people of color, and especially Black people. Um, Certainly, AAPI folks were caught up in this. When the governor decided to reopen some businesses, um, he did so prematurely, and one of those industries that opened up was cosmetology. It was nail salons and spas, and we know that a lot of AAPI folks work in those industries. We also saw the same thing with hospitality, where there are a lot of AAPI folks who are in those industries as well. And so So here we are having people forced to go back to work in a dangerous environment and being scared to go back to work because of the nature of how dangerous COVID was. And back then, it was before we even knew that a vaccine would be coming ahead. And it was before we truly understood just the implications of how fast COVID was spreading and how to prevent it. And And so certainly um, those things did weigh on my mind when the governor chose to reopen our state. And I think even more important is the 
lack of information on how to get tested, the lack of information on how to get vaccinated, especially when we're dealing with folks who do not speak English as a primary language. And we saw that certainly affect not just the Asian community, but the Latino community. And you went viral earlier this year when you spoke out against the lies about voter fraud in the Georgia elections. And later, we got to see more of you as you spoke out against Asian hate. When you were first speaking about the Atlanta shootings that happened, you were often speaking out against the people who refused to call it a hate crime. So can you tell us a little bit more about just how that impacted you? You know, just talking about the fact that you saw like these industries reopened, which hire a lot of people in the Asian community. We saw a rise in hate because of the pandemic and people blaming the Asian community. And now we have this act of pure horror and violence that really targeted women and people don't even want to call it a hate crime. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's intersections in a lot of the things that you talked about because the assignment um, of blame on China resulted in the blaming of anybody who is Asian and living in this country. And we saw that fallout immediately with people choosing not to frequent Asian businesses. And so there were some concerted efforts to try and minimize the economic harm of targeting Asian businesses and choosing not to spend dollars there. But then there was the increase in hate crimes that we saw happening across the country um, over the last year. And I distinctly remember we were in the middle of legislative session. We were protesting Senate Bill 202, the voter suppression bill. And I was going out and talking to activists who were at our state capitol at noon every single day for the entire session. And one afternoon, a woman approached me and she said, hey, B, I'm curious. I've been reading about all of these hate crimes um, that's happening across the country. Is that happening in Atlanta? And I said to her, you know, I think Atlanta is a little bit different because we don't have the same density that cities um, in New York and California have where there are uh, concentrated areas in which AAPI people live and they're able to walk there. And so we're not seeing the same types of thing because of our urban sprawl with a lot of the Asian community living in the suburbs. And it was a week after that where we saw this horrific shooting that was so incredibly violent in nature. And the more we learned about what actually happened, the worse it got. And part of it was, yes, these women who died at the hands of this enraged man, they were also working in highly vulnerable industries during a pandemic. And so you saw all of those things manifest itself. And the fact that it took so long to identify who they even were really spoke to the volume of their invisibility and their lack of ties to the community and the isolation um, that some of them faced. And so it was horrific and violent. And, you know, I think that this is common in America, this effort to dehumanize victims especially when they are people of color, especially if they are black, and this effort to justify the means, you know, of the perpetrator. And it exactly reminded me of the incident when Dylan Roof killed nine people in Charleston, South Carolina, and law enforcement took him to Burger King. And this time, this man kills eight people, and law enforcement said he was having a bad day. Yeah. And when the shooting happened, it did remind me of what happened in South Carolina. And 
it's like, here we go again. You know, they, they get to have bad days. It's not a hate crime. There's just always these excuses for why they don't have to actually own the horrific things that they have done. So we are seeing the end of the pandemic, but we know that this violence against the Asian community is still happening. What are some ways that we can stand in solidarity with the community during this time? I think it's important to continue our solidarity and movement building hand in hand and reminding our communities that that's what Asian Americans and Black Americans and Brown Americans did in the 60s when we were trying to pass the civil rights movement because Asians did not have the right to vote, did not have the right to own property, did not have the right to marry interracially, and for many years in this country, decades, didn't have the right to citizenship. And so we have to remember that we are fighting against the same system. And as an Asian American leader, my responsibility is to ask my community to do better and remind them that when this happened in Atlanta, my colleagues from the Georgia Black Legislative Caucus and AACP, they had my back immediately. They said to me, we know your pain too well. We are with you. We are here for you. No questions asked. And I want to see people in the Asian community do the same thing for Black lives. Um, it cannot just be about us in some solitary moment. It's got to be concerted, continued community building and the ability to heal between our black and brown communities where there has been tension, where we have to recognize that those who are oppressed can be the oppressor. So we have to be responsible for what is happening within the Asian community in terms of how we heal and we move forward and we continue to build that solidarity. But I think something that's critically important for all communities is to remember that these efforts to divide communities of color um, stem from that same system of white supremacy and they're very intentional in nature. So one of the things that we are seeing through social media is these you know, videos of some really horrific and violent incidences where Asian people are being attacked and it happens that some of the, the perpetrators are black. Those are the ones that go viral. But when we look at the data, the majority of hate crimes against Asian Americans are still by white people. And so these are the types of things that are used as weapons to divide communities. And we have to be cognizant of that and remember um, that we are fighting against the same system that holds all of us down. And if we can't do that together, those gains are, are not going to happen in the way that we want them to happen. So well said and such sound advice. And before you go, of course, I have to talk to you about your race for Secretary of State. I was so excited when you announced. So tell everyone a little bit more about your campaign, your website, and how they can follow you. Yeah, so I announced on May 4th, and I did pick May 4th on purpose. Somebody asked me that. I said, yeah, think of all the great puns that we can create <laughs> with a May 4th <laughs> announcement. They were great. I love them. You have some good ones. May the 4th be winning is what I came up with. And it has been 
it's been exciting with a lot of energy and a lot of folks in Georgia and across the country reaching out and saying we need a secretary of state who has a history of advocating for voter rights and voting expansion. And we need somebody who is going to use truth and facts. And we need somebody who is going to have Georgia's Georgians backs all the time when it comes to protecting this fundamental right to vote. And so we know in 2022, we are hoping that we have Stacey Abrams on the ballot. That is going to be Reverend Warnock reelecting him, Stacey Abrams on the ballot. And I think the Secretary of State's race is going to be one of the most important races, not just in Georgia, but in every single state. We know that the function of the Secretary of State um, as the chief elections officer, they are the ones who are going to be able to act as safeguards to what we are seeing, which is the erosion of democracy by Republicans. And so this seat is going to be really instrumental in how we move forward in the state of Georgia, especially knowing that we can win statewide, but we're going back in for redistricting where we have no control over the redistricting and gerrymandering. So what we're looking at is an uphill battle to take the House um, and so we've got to have these safeguards in place when it comes to our statewide races. You can learn more about my race on uh, beforgeorgia.com or follow me on Twitter, which is my favorite social media forum at beforgeorgia. It's spelled all the way out, B-E-E-F-O-R, Georgia spelled out. And I'm being told by young people that I need to get on TikTok, but I haven't made that jump yet. <laughs> I'm, I have a TikTok. I don't post anything, but I know when you do get on TikTok, it's going to be great. B, thank you so much for joining us. Just really appreciate everything that you do to make our country better. Thank you for having me. We are now joined by Gabriella and Marita for a bystander harassment training. These women will give us some tools we can use if we see someone being harassed. Take it away. So hello, I am Marita Ecubanez. I am Director of Strategic Initiatives for an organization named Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC. And hello, my name is Gabriela Mejia. I'm Training and Communications Associate at Hollaback, an organization looking to end harassment in all its forms. Harassment is behavior that is unwanted and unwelcome. So if you ever experience something and you're wondering if it counts, then that is a good way to think about it. If it was unwanted and unwelcome behavior that you experienced, then yes, it was harassment. And we can further break it down into different types of behaviors. And the top three that come to my mind are verbal harassment, nonverbal, and physical. Yeah, in our training, we talk about this idea of a spectrum of disrespect. So there are the more extreme forms of harassment, the sorts of things you often hear about in the news, hate crimes, verbal abuse. Um, but there are a lot of different behaviors that lead up to that, like racist jokes, right? Like physically distancing yourself away more from Asian Americans than other people. And the whole range of behaviors that we know of is microaggressions. And what we tell people in the training is if you are able to intervene safely in these more extreme examples of harassment, by all means do that. But we really encourage people to intervene in the seemingly less serious forms of harassment because that's where you have the opportunity to 
stop what's happening, prevent it from escalating, maybe even turn it into a teachable moment for the person that is doing the harassment or causing that conflict. I think as part of our work and a part of developing the tools of bystander intervention for people to intervene in these instances of harassment, it was really important for us to look at the concerns that people have about intervening. That's why we really push for the use of the more indirect tools as well that can de-escalate a situation without having things turn on you, without having to directly interact with the person doing the harm and still being able to show up to help someone. So four of the five Ds are indirect. And the first D is distract, which is causing a distraction to de-escalate the situation. Some sort of action that can be really creative, but doesn't directly address the harassment that's happening. And an example that we like to share is maybe going up to the person that's being harassed and just being in company with them by starting a conversation about really anything. Just letting them know you're there, you're seeing what's happening to them, and you've got their back by just saying, hey, do you have directions to this address? Could you look in your phone? My phone's out of battery. And now you're in conversation with them. They're not alone. The next D is delegate. Delegating is asking for help, either from other bystanders, or from someone in a position of authority. And delegate can be really useful if you feel like directly intervening in a situation isn't safe for you. Involving more people in those kinds of situations helps de-escalate situations. So turn around to the people that are noticing something wrong is happening and say, hey, do you see that happening over there? We should help them. We should do something. We should say something. Do you feel comfortable doing this? Or you can also go for someone in a position of authority. Now, a note here is that if you do decide to call the police, please ask the person being harassed first. Whatever they end up saying, I need you to respect their wishes, to remember you're showing up to reduce their trauma, to support them. So respect whatever they tell you, because there's a lot you may not know about them from just glancing at them, such as immigration status or their relationship with the police. Next is document, which is documenting the situation with video, photos, pen and paper, however you do it. Make sure you give it to the person that's being harassed at the end. That's the way that you can be really helpful. You can give them a chance to report it when they have this proof now. You can give them a chance to share on social media, and that should be up to them. Or they can keep it in their private files for no one to ever see again, because harassment is traumatic. The fourth D, delay, taking care of someone after harassment has ended. That's why it's called delay. Your delayed response, that sometimes is the only response you can have because harassment can happen really quickly a lot of the time. So you go up to them, you check in with them, and you ask them if they're okay. You let them know what happened to them is unacceptable and that they're not alone in this community and other people see what happened and are there to help them in whatever way they need. So use those words of caring that are already in you. And finally, direct is our last D, and it is directly talking to the person that is harassing, asking for them to stop. You can name the behavior as well. And then once you say your piece, you turn and take care of the person that's been harassed. Something really important here is that you're gonna do direct only if you feel safe enough to do so. And 
I want you to be pretty final in whatever you say to this person because they may try to get into an argument, but the person who really deserved your time is the person that was being harassed. That's the person we're showing up to help. So turn around and take care of them. Those are the five Ds. We definitely want to acknowledge that there may be one that I mentioned that really just popped for you. It was really something that you felt you could easily do that you maybe are already doing in your life to show up for others. So hold that one close to your heart and remember it. So it makes remembering the other ones even more helpful and you don't freeze in those moments of harassment. So we call that your superpower. So pick one and that may be your superpower. We are offering these trainings for this specific bystander intervention methodology for free on a weekly basis with within our partnership. So it's virtual, so it's accessible all around the country. And we really do think it's uh, appropriate for people of different ages. So if a family would like to attend with a younger generation of teenagers, they can attend and they can all walk away with something that could also be really helpful for the community. Yeah, and building on that point, we have received a lot of requests on whether this training is something that we could do for younger people. And that is something that we are working on. It's not something we have just yet. Lots of questions from parents and educators. And then the last thing I will add is that we have a third training that we do together that I think is also important for people to know about. And this was developed specifically in response to members of the Asian American community who said, okay, bystander intervention training, that's all well and good. What do I do when the harassment is directed at me? So that is our third training, which talks through some of the tactics, but also has a lot of emphasis on how to practice resilience in the face of harassment and discrimination. If you'd like to get trained in bystander intervention to stop anti-Asian, Asian-American xenophobic harassment, then I encourage you to go to ihollaback.org slash harassment training and sign up for one of our upcoming trainings. They're happening once a week for the rest of the year. So bring your allies, bring your family. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, our Instagram handle is iHollogram. And AAJC's Instagram is advancingjustice underscore AAJC. Thank you again. That was some really great information. If you or anyone you know would like to take this training, visit iHollaback.org. I took over as president of Emerge right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. This is also when we saw the first increase in violence against the Asian community in the U.S. and abroad. I was in my weekly meeting with the Emerge communications team, and I immediately knew that the first statement that I wanted to put out as the newly minted president of the organization would be on being in solidarity with the Asian community. This was a no-brainer for me. Fast forward a year later, I was once again in my weekly meeting with our Emerge communications team, and the pandemic was still raging on, and so was the violence against the Asian community. When our comms team asked me what was on my mind and what I want to talk about, I told them frankly I was exhausted by the narrative that the majority of these attacks were being committed by Black people. The reality was, the reality is 
There has been a long history of solidarity between the Asian and Black community, especially amongst the women. And that is what I wanted to write about. I couldn't sit back and not say anything. What came out of that meeting was a USA Today joint op-ed with me and my sister, Lynn Nguyen, Executive Director of Run AAPI and a BGG podcast guest that you all heard from in season five. Check out her episode if you haven't. We talked about the real culprit of the violence and the narrative that the hate against Asians was driven by Black people, white supremacy. The op-ed gained a lot of traction and support which included Jonathan Capehart inviting us both to be guests on his MSNBC Sunday show to talk about our work, our friendship, and what we can all do to fight back against Asian hate, black stereotypes, and white supremacy. While there was support, there was also equally just as much hate. Between my work at Emerge and the BGG, I'm used to my email account and DMs being full of straight trash from complete strangers. But this was different. It was some of the most violent, misogynistic, and hateful messages I have ever seen. And of course, it was all by white men. I mean, y'all, I have never been called an effing worthless B-word so much in my life. It actually made me wonder if there's some kind of proud boy manual where they give them a template on how to spew hate to black women who make them angry because damn. But all these men did was prove my point. And a few weeks later, a report came out confirming that the majority of violence against the Asian community had not been committed by Black people. Hashtag team not surprised. So in conclusion, I firmly believe that there is so much we have in common as people of color in this country. It's easier to try to divide us and pit us against one another than to truly own up to the history of racism and white supremacy that continues to power this country. Let us band together and be in the fight with each other and not against each other as we continue to fight for the soul of our nation. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. If you love the podcast, please take the time to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or make sure to subscribe on Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your pods. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. And you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Check us out for our next episode where we'll talk about how the pandemic has been impacting Native country. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey, everyone. You know I love to share podcast recommendations with you. And here's one that I think you might like from a previous guest of the podcast. Undistracted is a weekly intersectional feminist podcast hosted by activist, educator, and former host of Pod Save the People, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Brittany speaks to the biggest thought leaders in today's social justice movements, from politicians and activists to artists and athletes. 
So far, that's included people like Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Opal Tamidi. Plus, she'll catch you up on the latest feminist news you need to know. Enough with the insidious distractions. This new show will focus on what really matters, how we can create a more just world for all of us. Undistracted comes out weekly on Thursdays, so subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts to join the conversation.